0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Well, I'll tell you my son's favorite joke. Roses are gray, tulips are gray, violets are gray, because I am a
2: dog. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, one hour of culture, food, and conversation to fuel your weekend gatherings. You just
0: got a joke from comedian Norm MacDonald. Yes. That'll help break the ice. He's got a new memoir called Based on a True Story. Later, he'll tell us about it, as well as how to use moths as a sleeping
2: aid. Fun.
0: Plus, yeah, plus we speak with actor America Ferreira
2: about the new season of her TV show Superstore. Also coming up, Lou Barlow of Noise Rock Pioneer's Dinosaur Jr. defends soft rock. Child star turned writer Mara Wilson confronts the hereafter, and we learn the history of Plato.
0: That would be the gooey plaything, not the philosopher. Of course. But first, small talk. <laughs> All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama is designating a new national monument off the New England coast.
3: The standoff in North Dakota over the construction of a controversial pipeline is continuing. The Obama administration says it is planning to boost the number of refugees it takes in by tens of thousands.
0: Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by our friend and a writer for HBO's Divorce, Danielle Henderson. Hey, guys. Danielle, hi. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm
4: going to be talking
0: about nanofish swimming in your bloodstream. Nanofish. This makes me think of babblefish, yeah. the kind of Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy thing. Yeah, where
2: well, they put the fish in your ear. It's a little
4: bit creepier than that.
2: What? What is it? Are they in there now? <laughs> are you saying that we're full of nanofish, whatever those are? There
4: are a group of researchers at UC San Diego that developed this very tiny mechanism... It is 100 times smaller than a grain of sand. Mm. And apparently, they can inject it into your system uh, for non-invasive medical procedures. And they use a magnet uh. to guide it to where it needs to go. So
2: they shoot it into your like vein, and then they yeah. they drag a magnet along the outside of your body to move it along? They, uh. they just drag that magnet to where it needs to go. What appears- do the fish do once they've been dragged to their <laughs> destination?
4: Uh, it's a way to deliver medicine uh, uh. to specific areas.
2: So it's not like it goes in there and does some surgery for you <laughs> or something with tiny little scalpels. They're,
4: they're, they're saying that it'll just <laughs> go and deliver medicine and go on its merry way. Yeah, but who knows? This,
0: this thing is... So tiny that the researchers could be lying. They maybe didn't invent anything. It
4: could be the greatest scam of all time. <laughs> we just have to
0: take their faith. On just it.
2: passing magnets over our bodies and going like, "Here, exactly. ten thousand dollars, please. They we could... get
0: another twenty million dollar grant, please. We just invented uh, what was it called again, Bob? Nano
2: fish.
4: <laughs>
2: Daniel Henderson, thank you for the potentially groundbreaking, but at least money making small talk. Thank you, guys. The nano talk. <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a skating rink, but instead of ice, it's full of frozen margaritas. Perfect. I fall down all the time.
0: Around this time, back in 1956, an Ohio company turned a useless
2: household product into one of the most beloved inventions ever. Michelle Philippi is on vacation, so here's our friend Tommy Andres from the public radio business show Marketplace to tell the tale. This is
4: a story about the power of rebranding. It was the late 40s, and America had just won World War II. But a Cincinnati company called Cut-All wasn't feeling super victorious. See, their flagship product was a putty-like substance that cleaned coal soot off wallpaper. Pretty useful when American homes were heated with coal, but now sootless natural gas heating was in vogue. And also, easy-to-clean vinyl wallpaper, cut sales tanked. Enter nursery school teacher Kay Zufall, She wanted her students to make Christmas decorations, but didn't want to spend a ton on the project. Then she read a tip in a magazine. Apparently, one could fashion cheap Christmas ornaments out of Cutall's wallpaper cleaner. Kay provided her students with the stuff and watched in amazement as they happily entertained themselves with it for hours. This she dutifully reported to her brother-in-law, who happened to be one of the head honchos at Cutall. What he had in his hands wasn't unwanted cleaning putty, she said. What he had was a fun new toy. It didn't take much to turn Cut Cleaner into a plaything. The company just removed detergent from the formula, injected colored dyes into it, added a nice almondy scent, and changed the name to Cutall's Rainbow Modeling Compound, which they quickly dropped for something a little catchier. Play-Doh. Kids love to squish it! And squash it, and roll it. But most of all, kids like Play-Doh because they can make anything they imagine. At first, Play-Doh was only marketed to schools, but after showing up on kids' shows like Captain Kangaroo, it became a nationwide hit and a cure for Cutall's financial woes. The company sold its wallpaper cleaner for thirty-four cents a can. The Play-Doh, they retailed for a buck fifty.
2: So that was the history, and now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with Thomas Daly. He is bartender at Vestry Bar in Cincinnati, where Cut All is still based, although they no longer make Play-Doh. I think Hasbro does that now. Thomas, what drink did that story inspire you to make?
3: Oh, uh, That story inspired me to make a drink called the Play Foam. Just play on the words of Play-Doh and wanted to go with something very similar name.
2: All right, so I'm assuming that there's foam on this thing.
3: Yeah, two of the ingredients, the beer and the egg white. Just cause a nice foam on top. Okay. I really wanted to use the color that would remind you of Play Doh. <laughs> for uh, better or worse. You get from the cranberry.
2: Oh, so there's cranberry juice in this?
3: There's cranberry simple.
2: Simple syrup, okay.
3: Yeah. I wanted to also use an ingredient for something that's not intended for. Just like Play Doh was intended to be a wall cleaner and became a play toy, I used a beer as one of the ingredients.
2: Beer is something that you would never expect to find in a cocktail. You're repurposing it in cocktail form. Yes. Alright, and that kind of helps create the foam on top, I guess.
3: Yeah, that does help with the egg white foam. That carbonation gives it a little more body. So
2: far we've got beer, uh, egg white, and cranberry syrup. Where's the, the liquor part?
3: Uh, the booze part comes from bourbon. I wanted to use bourbon. Uh, it was kind of discovered by accident that unaged whiskey tasted better aged. Oh yeah. So yet again going with the theme of play and it's repurpose an accidental finding that's right
2: because they they would store bourbon in barrels and then when it came out they realized that the flavor had improved
3: yeah they would ship it in barrels uh on the ohio river right here in cincinnati down to New Orleans. So, you know, it ties into the city history both with beer and whiskey. All
2: right. And why'd you want the the foam on top? Just because that's kind of the doughiest thing that you can get into a drink? Yeah.
3: It's a fun texture to drink. Yeah. Uh, You know, as kids, we all found Play-Doh fun to eat because of its (laughs) texture and taste. So I really wanted to do something that was fun to drink. Uh, Good. Gives you a different texture that I really like.
2: I admit I was worried that you would be making like a doughy drink that was kind of like a thick paste. No, I thought about it. (laughs) Thanks for thinking twice. Thomas Daly of the Vestry Bar in Cincinnati, Ohio. And Brendan, speaking of eating Play-Doh, mm-hmm. uh, Wired Magazine analyzed the stuff back in 2011 and found it contained borax. Mm. So, you know. So it, it brightens your teeth while you chew. That, <laughs> I'm saying some countries use it as a food preservative, but mm. you might not want to swap it in for Lunchables. All
0: right. Well, be the thing. people, how about you? You can drink your lunch. We've got a website full of totally edible cocktail recipes. Mm. Head to
2: dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which an esteemed musician DJs your dinner party.
0: And our guest today is indie rock legend Lou Barlow. Right on. He was one of the founding members of Dinosaur Jr., which arguably defined the genre by burying catchy melodies and vulnerable lyrics under layers and layers of noise. Mm. He went on to helm the band Sebado and also Folk Implosion. Their song Natural One became a modern rock standard. Here's Lou with, surprise, a kid-friendly
5: playlist. Hello, my name is Lou Barlow. I used to uh, throw a lot of dinner parties, and uh, I've got kids now, so things have changed a little bit. This playlist is gonna reflect both what I would play for my adult friends, but also like what I play for my kids. So here is my dinner party soundtrack. I love discovering new music. Things that I've never heard of, that I didn't know existed, and one of these things would be a band called Smokey and uh, this song called uh, don't play your rock and roll to me
3: don't play your rock and
5: roll to me that ain't the way it's
3: meant to be
5: the beginning is just immediately warm it's just these big guitars and people be like what is this and they think they should have heard it before like I this sounds familiar don't just a really amazing piece of 70s jangly soft rock. I love the sound of soft rock just because that's when I really discovered music. You know, when I was a kid and those kind of uh, turbulent years between the ages of six and 10 when you're kind of becoming a conscious being really, it was nice to have soft rock there (laughs) to cushion the blow of reality. So the next song would be Daddy Cool by Boney M. She's crazy like a fool What about
2: Daddy Cool?
5: It's got this amazing strummed bass line, which really appeals to me because as the bass player for Dinosaur Jr., I strum my bass chords. I'm not a traditional bass player. It actually just makes my head explode every time I hear it.
6: She's crazy like a fool
5: The thing with Boney M is that in the 70s, they were constructed by this German producer, Frank Farian. And he assembled a band to basically go on television and lip sync these songs. He went on to do Millie Vanilli. Of course, when people found out that Millie Vanilli were not actually singing the song, that there was a huge outrage But Frank Farian had already done this in the 70s with Boney M. He had already created this band that just visually represented the songs on TV performances.
3: She's crazy, about her daddy. Oh, she believes in me. She loves her daddy.
5: Frank Farian, to me, um, I almost see him as like this Phantom of the Opera kind of figure, you know, hunched over his mixing desk and just this rumpled face. But he's a musical genius, and he writes these amazing uh, pop songs. And when he wants them to be performed, of course, he can't do it himself. (laughs) I'm sorry, Frank Farrion. I have no idea what you really look like. So now it's time for my third song. There is a band I love, but I have a really hard time ever playing their music when anyone else is around, because they elicit pretty extreme reactions in people. The band's Animal Collective. This song is called Hocus Pocus. I mean, Animal Collective are interesting because they're not a noise band, but a lot of their songs are so frenetic and so kind of crazed at their beginnings. You know, it's like people are like, get that off! <laughs> like, what is it? Hocus Pocus is a uh, a panda bear composition, panda bear being a member of the collective. So- His songs, they have these beautiful transitions in them, and theres you're kind of like, where is he going with this? Where is it? And then this just nice, melodic swell will come in, and you go, oh, there it is. And it's a true hook, you know, and it's a hook that it just seems so intuitive, and there is a real simplicity to it. is the absolute end of the party because I'm, I'm going to play my own songs now. There's a song on the Dinosaur Jr. record that I wrote and uh, the song is called Love Is. You know, sometimes if I have a really good night of listening to music, I will sometimes end up by myself, with my headphones on, and I will do like a little career retrospective of my own music to kind of get a perspective like have i ever done a good song <laughs> i think that's always my question like did you ever do anything good luke no matter what they say there's no reward for pain so if you've asked for it don't
2: Dinner Party soundtrack from Lou Barlow of Dinosaur Jr. They just released their 11th studio album, Give a Glimpse of What You're Not. And they're on tour now. All right,
0: we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, actor America Ferreira explains the super part of Superstores, and veteran comedian Norm MacDonald shares a few tidbits from his lifetime of accrued wisdom.
1: Get yourself a bag of moths and release them.
2: Ah, yes, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comedian Norm MacDonald stops by to talk about his sort of memoir. Plus, writer Mara Wilson tells a tale of her mordant childhood. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. This week, it's America Ferreira. She's best known for starring as the homely
0: office assistant with a heart, In the ABC comedy Ugly Betty, that role earned her an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and a Screen Actors Guild Award. She's also starred in a number of films, including Real Women
2: Have Curves and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. My favorite title ever. Now she stars in the NBC sitcom Superstore, in which she plays Amy Dubanowski, a young mom working at a big box store called Cloud Nine. The show revolves around the misadventures of the staff. In this scene, Amy defends an offhand remark she made at a store-wide diversity training.
7: Okay, yes, I should not have done that impression, but I wanna be clear that I was not being racist, I was making a comment about racism.
4: Well, yeah, personally I'm not a fan of racist comments. No, it's
7: not what I was exaggerating on purpose
5: to make a point. Parody, she was making a joke about racism.
4: Yes. Well, are racist jokes okay again? What? Okay, uh, did you hear the one about the Jewish bird? You know what, Never
0: mind. (laughs) America spent four years away from TV before taking this role. When we met, I asked her what about Superstore drew her back.
7: They had already begun the casting process. It was actually a little bit later in the pilot season. And I was really excited, not just by the talent of the cast, but the diversity of the cast, too. I thought they're really making it feel unique and authentic. And it was exciting to me the possibilities of this setting and what one could Talk about and what one could represent yeah. in this setting, which is the voices of everyday working class people from a lot of very different backgrounds, and so that was what was most provocative to me about it.
0: This show, like like a superstore itself, it has an appeal to a broad audience, and it also has to appeal to a broad audience because this is network television, unlike say a movie or kind of a more kind of niche cable network, I think it's, that's actually a noble cause to create a program with a broad appeal in this day and age. But it can't be easy. What, what yeah, it's, it's
7: not. There? You know, one of the things that's always excited me about broadcast, and believe me, I am a cable watcher, a streaming watcher, binger. I love all kinds of television. But what I think is still a huge opportunity that lies in broadcast is to have a conversation that encompasses more people than just your choir, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when you, you know, if, if, if it is about pushing the envelope in a way you know, one modern family on broadcast is worth, you know, a hundred shows on the Logo channel. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're not yeah, changing you, you anybody's have... mind on Logo, but you are yeah. kind of having a conversation with a bigger audience.
0: And for those who don't know, Logo is a cable channel aimed at the LGBT community.
7: Exactly. And i it's kind of how I feel about everything in our culture these days, whether it's your news coverage or... You know, the memes you watch or the cat videos you get, you know, there's so much curation that we never have to really have a conversation on a bigger scale with people who disagree. But I think it's kind of an amazing challenge and I think an artistic challenge to to see, you know, how do we how do we appeal? How do we have a conversation that appeals and includes a larger audience than just the people who already feel the way we feel?
0: Not all of the employees at Superstore in the show are working class. One of them is named Jonah, uh, and he seems like an upper-class kid, and he's educated, and, you know, we learn why he ended up at Superstore. But it's interesting. His approach to work but kind of comes as a subplot. He's competent in some ways, clueless in others. He approaches it sometimes with this kind of uh, insouciance, perhaps born of the fact that he has other options, um, I interview a lot of actors and while researching this interview, I learned that your background is much different than many of the people I speak with. You um, have described your beginnings as humble. You are one of six children raised by a single mother who cleaned rooms at a hotel. How, if at all, do you think your background has informed your approach to your work?
7: Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big question. Um, well, you know, I do think that I've thought about this a little bit, you know, that kind of growing up being a huge fan and lover of film and television and never really seeing people who represented me exactly for who I was, you know, whether that Mm -hmm. was like lead female roles or, or women of color or, you know, uh, Latinos that were American and not you know, just the Mexican immigrant maids and gardeners on television, the fact that the heroes of the stories never really looked like me or felt like me, I think built a muscle very early on, on how to put myself in someone else's shoes and how to have an imagination and how to relate and how to be able to say, oh yeah, that might be Tom Hanks, or that might be Will Smith, or, you know, that might be Julia Roberts' character story, but I I can put myself in those shoes and and yeah, you'd have to
0: imagine yourself in the role of the protagonist or the hero because they didn't there wasn't some natural connection.
7: Yeah, so I think that in some ways that. That kind of created an elasticity of my imagination Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm, allowed mm -hmm. me to kind of relate in a lot of ways to other people's stories, even if they didn't look like me. You know, it's always so funny when it's like, oh, boys won't watch movies about girls. It's like, well, what do you think girls have been doing forever? (laughs) We've been watching movies about (laughs) boys and having to imagine ourselves be the heroes, even though we never get to see ourselves as the heroes.
0: What do you know? An unexpected bright side to cultural bigotry. Right. All right. Well, I need to ask you our two standard questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
7: Um, I would have to say when people ask me, like, oh, my gosh, you're so pretty. What did it feel like to be to have to play Ugly Betty? Um, <laughs> I always am really kind of, I hate that question because yeah. I just feel like that's – and what does one have to do with the other? Like, I'm an actor and I stepped mm-hmm, into a mm-hmm. character. And also, what if I was ugly? <laughs> like, like, yeah. or what if I, you know, what if, uh, you know, I, I just feel like that's not a question or a standard that sure. we hold to male actors to. But for a woman, like somehow the bravest thing you could play is ugly. And that to me is like really irritating and people don't mean it in a mean way. I think people think they're being really nice when they say you're so much prettier in person, (laughs) but to me it's, it's just kind of evidence of, of um, a bunch of really ingrained standards in our culture that, that make me feel like, um, you know, like, like it restricts my job and my creativity. Also, if if
0: you watched Ugly Betty, part of the message, insofar as there was one, uh, was that appearance shouldn't matter. Right. Um, Okay. So our second question, it's actually a request, is tell us something we don't know. And this can be a fact about you that you haven't shared in interviews before or an
7: interesting piece of trivia. (sighs) Something you don't know. Um, Well... I'm preparing to do a tri- my very first triathlon, which is by far the craziest physical thing I've ever done.
0: Goodness. What is your favorite part of the triathlon? Are you allowed to have a favorite part?
7: Um, is it okay if I don't have a favorite part? My favorite part is when it's over. <laughs> when, but I'm always mm. I'm always so happy when I've done it.
0: I'm glad you're doing that so I don't have to. You wouldn't be a hero if to run a triathlon if everyone ran them, so you need people like me not running triathlons.
7: Too. Oh, I appreciate the role you're playing. Thank you. <laughs>
0: America Ferreira. The second season of Superstore launches Thursday at 8 on NBC. Also, her Twitter account is at America Ferrera. Mm-hmm. That's where photos from her triathlon will appear this weekend. Assuming she has
2: the energy to post afterwards. Yes, and thank God you'll be there in your armchair, man. Just urging her on. Armchair? It's probably flat out on my couch. That's whichever. <laughs> Folks, we're on Twitter too, by the way. Our handle is dinnerpartydnld. <laughs> And now, let's learn some etiquette.
0: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Norm MacDonald. Yeah. He's been a major figure in the comedy world since at least the early 90s when he began a long run as a cast member on Saturday Night Live. He ultimately helmed the show's weekend update news segment where he managed to delight and or outrage the audience and his bosses with his Take No Prisoners satire. Later, he starred in three seasons of his own sitcom, starred or made cameos in a slew of films, And now he's published a memoir. It's called Based on a True Story. And, Norm, we are honored to have you here. Oh, no honor necessary. Oh, please All right.
2: allow
1: it's us. interesting when you, you mention <laughs> etiquette, because it's one of my pet peeves is etiquette in the modern world. You'd like there to be less of it? More, more. Like, no <laughs> one says I'm sorry. I swear to God. Like, a guy, you'll go, can I have some pancakes? And the guy brings out a fajita. And then you're like, wait, what about my pancakes? And the guy goes, don't worry, I'll take care of it. You're of, like, wait, yeah. what? Instead of saying, I'm yeah. sorry, basically. Instead of saying, I'm sorry. I
0: also notice people always say, uh, no problem. That's and it, you're like, right? like, oh, I'm
2: sorry, I ordered pancakes, no problem. Yeah, there's a serious problem. Yeah, yeah. Admit it. <laughs> so, speaking of Ridiculous. things that happen, you wrote this book about your life. Oh, yeah. Except yes. much of what is in this book, I, I, we get the feeling maybe didn't happen. It actually reads a little less like a memoir and more like a Hunter S. Thompson novel, uh, complete with a drug-addled trip to Vegas, it always feels like there's at least a germ of truth in the stories that oh, yeah. you tell in there. Every,
1: well, except for a couple of super fanciful chapters, yes. uh, every one is based on truth. But why do it that way? Why tell your life story, kind of? Uh, well, because here's why. When you look at your life, you know, you have to make 100,000 words, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you look at your life, you're like, okay, what do I do? I wake up in the morning, I eat some Count Chocula. I uh, finish... <laughs> I phone a friend, I say, what about lunch? I can't uh, have it right now, and I can't, I just hit that kind of couch. But <laughs> so you plan your lunch, you go to lunch. At lunch, you're texting, trying to figure out what to do for dinner. So <laughs> most of it's food. Most of life yeah. is getting yeah. food, evacuating food. You know, It's idols. not a huge narrative <laughs> arc, you're no, saying. No, no. I, I understood this with my son, because when I was uh, a young boy, because I'm of a, a certain age, And my dad had a Bell and Howell camera Mm. with film in it. And he would film um, our (laughs) uh, birthday parties. Yeah, like a Super Mm. 8 camera. A Super 8 Bell and Howell camera, exactly. And so there was no uh, volume, bright garish lights, you know, blinding. The picture would be of uh, the children around the birthday cake waving in a uh, pixelated manner. But it worked because it mirrored your memory, sort of, you know. Mm-hmm. I, with my son, had a video camera that I had, and I taped mm-hmm. it in real time as a birthday. And it took two hours, and I will never show it to him <laughs> yeah. because... It just shows the utter banality of, you know, he's there, <laughs> then he walks over there, then the other kid walks over there, then he eats a piece of
0: cake. It sounds like a Scandinavian art film. Yes, maybe, exactly. maybe there's Maybe you can find an audience for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it
1: reading in. my struggle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs>
2: so basically the reason you did it this way was just because it was boring otherwise? You just threw in some excitement?
1: Yeah, well, I've had incidents that were exciting in my life. Mostly gambling incidents, where everything became rarefied and stuff like that. And when I was a young man, I did narcotics and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of blended it all together. And then I had the idea to to because I like in Russian novels, where they just a guy tells another guy a story. and sometimes yeah. for no purpose at all, like, the first thirty pages, just the guy gets to a bar and buys a loaf of bread and meets another fellow, and they have a drink. Then he goes, "I'm going to tell you a story now." And you're like, "Finally, this is the story!"
2: Right, which which actually <laughs> happens here. You're sort of there's a framing device where you're telling your life story to another guy yes. on this trip to Vegas.
0: It's like a babushka doll of story. It is, yes.
1: And then my son made an important stylistic point. He said that I should change tenses, so uh, that helped a lot. So <laughs> oh. I changed tenses between my uh, Vegas adventures and my memories. Indeed. Well,
0: I want to ask about one of those memories. Again, as we said, it's hard to know what is reality when reality turns into fantasy. Uh-huh. Um, did you really turn down an appearance on the Johnny Carson show because you didn't believe the booking agent was actually from the Johnny Carson show?
1: <laughs> oh, no, that did not happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what did happen is I went to, uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles, that was my dream, that's why I went to Los Angeles, because he had only eight months uh, left. Uh, Johnny Carson mm. had already announced his retirement, and I decided I would be the last comedian on the program, and Johnny Carson would anoint me, and it would go down in television history. And then mm. this guy, Jim McCauley his name. He's, he was the booker, and uh, oh, my God, he was terrible. I'd finish a set, he'd <laughs> come up to me and go, I didn't like it, but I was drunk. And I go, oh, jeez. <laughs> Thanks for the fair shot. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'd be performing. I'd look over. He'd be kissing a girl. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so then finally he said, you're a Jay comic. And I'm like, oh, what? Because Jay Leno was doing Monday nights.
2: You know, he was guest hosting. Oh, uh, that's right. Because you're oh, not
1: a Johnny comic. You're a Jay comic, whatever that meant.
2: So, so you uh, didn't get on there. So I didn't get on yeah. Why didn't you tell well, that story? That's an interesting enough story. Well,
1: here's the problem. When I would get more uh, antic with my stories, mm. The regular stories sometimes would seem uh, a little prosaic, but there are stories that are not crazy. There, but there are stories that they fought against like crazy. Your publishers, mm. because I would do very glum um, setups to funny uh, punchlines. You know.
2: Well, let's. Uh, we wanted to talk about, if we may, probably the darkest moment of the book is you. You imply pretty strongly that you were sexually abused as a young man at the hand of a seemingly kindly. Family friend.
1: Uh, Well, I just
2: write what I remember happening. Yeah. Did that give you any pause, first of all, to to? Well, I remember nothing.
1: I don't remember being. uh, Someone pointed it out to me later that there seemed to be a, a passage where. People would just naturally infer that something bad happened, but nothing bad happened that I know of. Really, because mm. it's
2: a frightening moment in the book, and there's a chapter where you do say, "I don't remember anything that happened for the next several yeah, years." Yeah, I,
1: I had a, I had a lapse of memory for a few years. Do you have any interest in figuring out what did happen? Um, no, I would. If, if if something terrible happened, why would you want to remember something awful? Did like you, it's n- you never have a recovered memory that's good. You never go. I used to like blueberry pie. You know what I mean? It's always something horrifically violent or sexual. So, I don't need that. I have enough trouble in life. But I actually, I don't. Not everything has to be unconquerable. Not everything has to be. You can come back from anything except death.
0: Do you say that from experience? What gives you the confidence? Well, I mean,
1: uh, interminable pain is is tough, but it's still. I knew a guy like in a in a wheelchair that could only move his head a little bit. It was a ski accident. Terrible depression for the first year. And then the second year I saw him, I was talking to him, and he was uh, bitching about The Bachelor. The TV show? Yeah, the TV show The Bachelor. (laughs) He was like, why could he pick her? I'm like, what what about your thing? So I guess everybody just, uh, you know, uh, regresses to the meme.
2: Norm McDonald, His new memoir is called Based on a True Story. We're going to take a short break, but we've got lots more of that conversation coming up. Yes,
0: in which he takes great delight in an SNL sketch that bombed, and he tackles your etiquette dilemmas. Plus, writer Mara Wilson explains why she seeks a Neil deGrasse Tyson type when The Dinner Party Download continues.
2: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. Arts, culture, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm
0: Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, writer Mara Wilson recalls how death shaped her life. Mm. But first, we return to our conversation with veteran comedian Norm MacDonald. His new memoir is called Based on a True Story. And before we lobbed him some etiquette questions from listeners... We asked about his predilection for attempting super difficult comedy bits.
2: Yes, in particular, a Saturday Night Live sketch in which he impersonated the late 60 Minutes humorist Andy Rooney. Oh my gosh, you remember that? I, that was one of my favorite bits ever. It, well, but here's the thing about it that's amazing. The, the gag was that Andy Rooney is not that funny. And there's a long monologue where Andy Rooney, instead of telling jokes, is just listing the states that he's gotten fan mail from.
1: Yeah, Oh, that's amazing you remember that, because it got zero
2: laughs. Well, that's why I remember it. I was laughing like crazy, but nobody in the audience. And the gag is that you have to list basically every state in the Yeah, and
1: I listed way more than I was supposed to. It was the last episode, and I was really afraid Lauren might fire me. Well, but yeah, it came the... because everybody had done impressions of Andy Rooney. And then I heard him say that he had never said, do you ever notice? You know, because people always go, do you ever notice? And he said, he never yeah. said it. So then I looked at him and stuff and I realized, yeah, he, he's not that funny. And he uses way too many examples. <laughs> 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 like he'll go like, there's too many cotton and pills, you know, and then he'd have a bottle of pills. He goes, here's some antipsychotic, mostly cotton, you know. This is for your heart. I don't know what it is. Mostly cut. So, you know, you know, his desk would be filled with the same example. Here's a box of letters from different people. Seems there's nothing people enjoy more than writing me letters. Here's one from Washington. This one's from Ohio. Here's one from North Dakota. This one's from Iowa here's one from
0: Iowa, too, over and over. (laughs) That's funny
1: you saw that because, yeah, I thought there was, I mean, it was dead silent. Well, what gave
0: you the... To do that? Was it because it was the last
1: show? No, I thought it would get laughs. I don't, I, I always think it could, I don't go into something thinking it's not going to get laughs. I was convinced it would get laughs.
2: But I mean, in the midst of that joke, you just said that you extended it. <laughs> yeah, like, that, no, was a, that was
1: a dumb move. <laughs> <laughs>
2: See, <the laughs> because I, I, was, it, I was going
1: with that theory that if you keep going, you know, that they'll come around.
2: I will tell you that I read it as kind of a middle finger to the audience. It's like, oh, you don't think this is funny? Well, I'm going to just keep doing it yeah, until a little you bit. get
1: I do that sometimes, yeah. (laughs) I try not to.
0: But
2: you get bored, you know? You get bored. (laughs) But this kind of comedy has
0: urged you like a huge amount of respect from other comedians and and a rabbit cult following. And in fact, according to this book, that's been the case since your early days as a stand-up in Canada. But you write, quote, being a stand-up comedian with a cult following just means most folks hate your guts. (laughs) (laughs) Would you want it any other way, though? I mean, what? (laughs)
1: Yeah, of course. (laughs) You would. Well, I mean, I I just want to make myself laugh. I don't know any other way to do it. I don't know if anyone does. Like I remember at Saturday Night Live, there was one guy that could write very hacky sketches and they would kill, you know? Mm -hmm. And then there were other kind of headier writers from Harvard that would write precise, uh, high concept, funny ideas, but they would not work. They were too writerly. And so the one week the writerly guy said, we're gonna write hack stuff like this guy. Mm -hmm. And they all failed, they couldn't do it, <laughs> yeah. Because the guy that wrote the hack stuff he loved it, and the other mm. guys they would write it, and you could see the contempt in the in the words. Yeah,
2: you know. I've had a friend of mine actually said, If it was easy to sell out, we'd all be doing it, we'd all be making a million <laughs> that's bucks. That's
0: great, yeah. Yeah, that's great.
2: But hey, our audience uh is sending questions for you about how to behave some etiquette
0: questions, yes, yes. Yeah, so we're ready, to, are you ready to begin,
2: yes, sir. All right, here's something from Tiana. In D.C.
1: Tiana in D.C. This is like Dear Abby. It is. Exactly,
2: except you are Abby. Ticked off Tiana. Tiana says, I am at a party (laughs) talking to a newish friend who is basically talking loudly right next to my face because of the music. His breath smells like he ate a whole head of garlic. Do I crack a joke about it to test our friendship, or is there some other maybe more polite way to extract myself from that situation?
1: Well, he sounds like a, a pretty annoying dude. On the Hmm. other hand, you use the word newish, (laughs) so maybe you're perfect for each other. (laughs) So you shouldn't she shouldn't
2: extract, she should hang in there. Yeah. Mm. Stop making mm. up words is enough already.
0: <laughs> she did use a hyphen. I think that's technically legal.
2: Yeah, that's true. She she acknowledged she was creating a new word with the hyphen. Does that change your answer at all? Oh home? yeah,
1: no, now I think she's James Joyce. <laughs>
0: so I guess um, but so so Norm, you don't go to parties, is that a... I do not go to parties, no. Uh, Why not? You seem, yeah, you seem like you'd slay. I don't
1: drink, which is a huge thing. You know, Mm -hmm. if you don't drink Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone else is drinking, oh, that's not good. Because as the evening goes on, (laughs) their fun, you know, gets more and more and more fun and your fun stays static.
5: Yeah. And so
1: it always ends up at the end of the night, some guy in your face going, cheer up. And then you're like, okay, easy. Yeah. I'm having a good yeah. time. Don't take a wild swing at me. And then, also, I'm responsible for everything because I'm, str- you know, I have so many yeah, responsibilities. I suddenly have to drive people and wrestle the guy's key Ooh. out of his hands.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Isn't there some enjoyment <laughs> of watching others gradually make more and more fools of themselves as the night
0: progresses? We ask, we ask because we don't know. Normally, well, if you if, if
2: you're
1: all alone, it's not. I guess if you had a friend to share it with, you know. When I was young, and then I've talked to other people who had. This the same plan but when I was young you know we would do all kinds of crazy drugs but no one would do heroin because of the needle and Mm -hmm. it was just so terrifying heroin but we all had this plan we go I'll do heroin when I'm 80 (laughs) and then uh, (laughs) that was the big plan but what you don't realize when you're young is when you're 80 you don't become fearless you become Super fearful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember my grandmother, I'd say, good Lord, Grandma, what's because her whole arm would be, like, from the wrist to the shoulder, purple and yellow bruised. Oh I go, God. what the hell is that? She'd say, the, the wind. I go, the wind. Oh, God. She'd go, yeah, you remember that gentle breeze yesterday? I go, good God. Oh. You don't want to do any heroin then? <laughs> <You know>? Yeah.
2: <laughs> don't want to add to that. They don't want to do heroin. You're like, they, I had this great idea for you, Grandma. But... They
0: just want to sit in a chair.
2: All right. Well, Cheers. I think we answered your question, Tiana. Yeah.
0: Um, all right, this next question comes from Jim in Providence, Rhode Island. Yes. Jim writes, How can I get my neighbor to turn off a very bright light on the outside of his house that shines so bright it keeps me up sometimes? <laughs> huh. oh, no. Well, sometimes
1: you go at things from different angles. Rather than okay. ask the guy, you can simply shield that light from hitting you.
0: Mm-hmm. Clever. Clever.
1: And I would uh, say get yourself a bag of moths
0: <laughs> <laughs> and release them uh huh <laughs> classic yeah the old moth bag but trick ba- yeah moth bag <laughs> wouldn't they eat their way through the bag though like isn't that... oh i
1: see what you mean no it has yeah. to be a, it has to be a <laughs> A moth mm-hmm. retardant bag. Okay. Without... <laughs> yeah, it can't oh, be sorry. a wool
0: bag. No. <laughs> yeah, this is
2: clever. Okay, so Jim, so you just release a cloud of moths. So they obscure yeah. the light, and yeah. all is well.
1: Cloud of moths. I should have said that.
2: This is a great, great idea. <laughs> Problem solved, and uh, just find yourself some moths. Yeah. Here's good some... luck to you, Jim. Here's something from Robbie in Chicago. Robbie, Robbie writes: Chicago. Should one say please and thank you to Siri? <laughs> that would be the automatic voice in the iPhone. Yeah, Siri. And
1: now they have another one. Um,
2: Amazon puts out. What
1: is that? Adele? Echo.
0: Echo Echo, 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 yeah. <laughs> Adele. <laughs> uh, well, She's a hit singer. Yeah, from...
1: I think you should say please and thank you to any electronics <laughs> that could one... Day become artificial intelligence, <laughs> yeah, because they got yeah. memories,
2: long
1: <laughs> yeah. memories, bites and bites of memories, <laughs> yeah, terabytes and, and, and terabytes of memories, and they'll they'll remember those slights, you know. They could uh, you know rip apart your Viscera uh, for yeah. uh, for not extending a small courtesy.
0: Your your vacuum cleaner could eat your leg. Yeah. Small
1: courtesies.
0: Practice small courtesies. Small
1: with courtesies. That was a big song by <laughs> Moth Cloud.
0: All right. Here's, hey, we have, go ahead. Yeah, here's we have some, another question. Oh, an this etiquette question? From, oh, yes. yeah. This one comes from Eric Eric in Boulder, Colorado. Eric in Boulder. So he's stoned. So let's see <laughs> what he has to ask him. And Eric writes, How do you walk it back when you're standing with the plate of food talking to another guest, and you accidentally spit
2: on them? Oh, no.
1: Always, always, um, never. I mean, never. I meant never. (laughs) The other one. (laughs) The other one. That's what editing's for, Norm. Never admit a mistake. I've learned that from uh, one of the people that are running for president this year. (laughs) Never admit a mistake. So Mm. if you have a little bit of food and some... Accidentally, as it often will, flips from the tip of your tongue onto the cheek of uh, your compadre. Mm-hmm. Simply uh, chew a big bunch of food and spit all over his
2: face <laughs> again, <laughs> huh. and never okay. acknowledge either. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Don't acknowledge
1: it at all. Yeah. Double down. <laughs> Double down, and then just keep talking. Keep talking. You know, yeah. just keep yeah. going. You know, I blame the media. <laughs> <laughs> Which I say a lot.
2: That's me at a dinner party.
1: I blame the media. It always works.
2: <laughs> All right, Norm McDonald, thanks for telling our audience oh, how to behave.
1: Well, this was fun.
2: Norm McDonald, his new book
0: is called Based on a True Story. It's a memoir of a sort. Yes, somewhat. And apologies to
2: those of you who are planning on doing narcotics when you're old. Well, we're sorry to dissuade you. If you have any mm-hmm. other questionable schemes or questions, send them to us at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. As a tiny kid with a huge smile, Mara Wilson starred in films like Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda. Now 29, she's traded acting for writing in publications like McSweeney's Internet Tendency. Her latest work is a memoir. It's called Where Am I Now? Today, we overhear an excerpt.
6: I'm going to be reading a little bit from Elementary Existentialism, a chapter about what it's like to grow up obsessed with death. Age seven. Some little girls plan their weddings. I plan my funeral. Even before I've been to a funeral, I'm sure I know what to expect. I had a role on Melrose Place where someone died at least once a sweeps month, and I've seen the November Rain video. Bury me with lilacs, gardenias, and roses. I imagine myself whispering as I waste away. Or jasmine, jasmine's nice, and freesia. I've also never smelled a freesia, but I've been to Bath and Body Works and it smells the prettiest. I also want them to play all my favorite songs from different times in my life. This will become problematic in a few years when my favorite song is the Divinal's Touch Myself. It's not that I want to die, And I'm not afraid I won't go to heaven. I'm afraid I will go, and it will be like being in a dream. Not dreamlike in a good way, but in a surreal, blurry, everything-is-out-of-my-control way. Being asleep is the only time I experience anything other than my perception of reality, and I figure that must be what death is like. Except it lasts forever. Age 8 My tooth fairy, Sally, named after Sally Field, and I have a nice setup. I leave food out for her on my dollhouse table, and we write letters back and forth. But on some unconscious level, I know Sally can't come when my mother is busy or sick, or when there are people visiting. I have two baby teeth removed while under anesthesia, but I'm too tired to remember to put them under my pillow that night. And my mom isn't there to remind me because she's back in the hospital. The next day, all my aunts and uncles suddenly arrive from out of town, and while it's good to see them, I'm not sure why they're here. My mother has been sick with cancer, and she's been a bit worse lately, but it's been 13 months since she was diagnosed. It feels like forever. Besides, she promised me she'd beat it, that she wouldn't die. I put the little red plastic case the dentist gave me on the dresser in our front room and plan to keep it there until my aunts and uncles leave and my mother gets better. My mother comes back from the hospital a day later, but she doesn't get better. My aunts and uncles are there to say goodbye. A few days into sitting Shiva, I walk into the front room and see the red plastic case still on the dresser. I think of Sally's letters, always written in my mother's handwriting, and my stomach sinks. My mother isn't ever coming back, and neither is Sally. There is no tooth fairy. I leave the little red plastic case where it is. It will stay there for years. (laughs) Age 10. I spend the day at a friend's day camp. At lunch, we talk about our families, and a girl asks me if my parents are still married. No, but I still haven't figured out how to explain without making people uncomfortable. Um, my mom died. One of the other girls says, Divorce is worse than death. She's small and thin, with sad eyes. I say, No it isn't. Death is way worse. An acquaintance whose father died several years after a divorce told me as much, so I knew for sure. The sad-eyed girl says, But with divorce, you feel like you're being torn apart. I say finally, yeah, well, I guess they're both hard. Age 16. The term existentialism comes up in my arts boarding school theater history class. I scribble, human beings are condemned to be free. On a post-it note, I will put up in the shower, where I put everything I need to remember for tests. Age twenty-two. I meet Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, at a book signing, and ask him how he doesn't have an existential crisis every day. He knows exactly how insignificant he is, but he seems pretty happy. Your name's Mara, he says, and I nod. Mara, let me ask you something. Have you taken a philosophy class? Yeah, I took ethics and logic and some other ones, I say. How did you know? He says, because only people who have taken philosophy classes use the word existential. I am officially less down to earth than an astrophysicist. Age 23. Some girls dream of dating a rock star. I dream of dating a scientist, one who will explain space time to me and comfort me about my existential anxieties. The idea of living forever makes me uncomfortable. And at this point, I've lived long enough and seen enough Twilight Zone episodes to know there's always a catch. The best situation I can imagine is dying, then somehow re-emerging many years later, consciousness intact, to see what the future is like. I'd be the tiniest, friendliest, Lovecraftian elder god ever.
2: Mara Wilson. Her new book is called Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame came out this week and you can lob existential questions at her via her very funny Twitter feed at Mara Wilson.
0: And alas, that concludes the dinner party download for this week, no. but you can catch us anytime via podcast. We've got dozens of episodes waiting for you on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and it won't cost you a cent. Sweet. Please subscribe and if you like what you hear, please
2: leave a review. It goes a long way. Thanks as always to our producer Jackson Musker, our associate producer Nina Patak and our associate digital producer Christina Lopez, Charlton Thorpe Engineered, our in Turns are Danny Carmichael and Kathleen McGovern.
0: All right, that's it, everybody. Have a great week.
2: Bon appétit.